say all glory be to Christ. I was, uh, uh, I heard that song several years ago and I played it on repeat as I was putting together some kids, uh, uh, kitchen set that I, I don't, I think Michelle purchased it for kids. I don't remember, but all the instructions were, came in Chinese. And so it was like an exploded picture of how all these things went together all Chinese, and I'm sitting on our floor regretting every decision I've made in my life, literally every single one, um, being born, breathing, ever finishing high school, whatever decision. I'm just sitting there rethinking all of it. And then uh, this song was playing on repeat so much that I remember Michelle, like, turn that off. Like, she was so sick of hearing it. But it was the only thing that was keeping me sane. Uh, and I, you know, I, I randomly sing the lyrics of that song. And when we were at the uh, annual meeting, the Missouri Baptist Convention annual meeting several weeks ago, Matt Papa concluded the worship service leading everyone to sing that song. And I had never sang it corporately with people. And I thought, man, I don't know of a better thing to be declaring when we gather as Christians, but all glory be to Christ. It's just such, and so it's so moving to me to be able to sing those words with you guys. And I hope it becomes a song that we, we get to do a lot together. Um, there's several hymns all through history that, that people know. And it's just a beautiful thing to declare certain things together. Because when we worship, we're both singing vertically and horizontally, right? We're singing to each other. And so we're reminding each other, wait a minute, all glory must be to Christ while we're also declaring to the Lord, all glory be to Christ. And we need that. We need to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to each other, as Colossians 3 tells us. Anyway, that's, uh, that's your main high note. The rest, of the, the rest of the service is kind of a downer because the end of Judges is the worst place in the Bible. I'm not kidding, man. I've been wrestling with this for several days. And I mean, I've you know, I read 19 through 21 um, three different times, and different times things stood out to me, and then I started studying it, and I found myself just sitting in my office chair, like uh, last night, two different times, and I just get tears and think, guys, this is so sad, and you could just, you could fly over these stories, or you could just sit in them for several days, and it's just so depressing that these are God's people, and the stories we're about to read, the darkness that's there. I would encourage you to grab one of these. Um, it's a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, there should be one looks just like this underneath the seats in front of you. We are going to tell the story of Judges 19, 20, and 21. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to tell the story by hitting some verses as we go through. Some of those verses will be on the screen. But I encourage you, for the sake of honoring the Word of God, that God wrote this. It's a story that He wants you to hear. And because we're probably in some of the worst places in the Bible, if you want to see like some of the worst things ever been written, open the Bible right now. Get out. You know, If, if you can avoid the temptation, you can handle your electronic device do that, but I would encourage you, just get a physical Bible in your hand, open to Judges 19, and skim along with me as we talk about the, these stories. Um, we're going to pray here in a minute, but in a, in a nutshell, Judges is a story of a people who decide to forget God. They decide that they want to do what they want to do. And in fact, when we start chapter 19, and then we look at the very last chapter, we're going to see kind of the whole theme of Judges, so I'm not going to cover that now. But these verses, uh, these next chapters are some of the darkest times in Israel's hif uh, history. It's referenced in Hosea later on. Some of these acts that happen and just known as like, this is such a terrible time. So um, we've got a lot to talk about. A lot of heavy stuff. Let's pray. Let's pray the Lord guides us, that he gives us ears to hear, uh, that we can wade through this and that we don't decide to check out because of distraction or because it's awkward, uncomfortable, hard to deal with. 
Father, I pray that during this time that all glory would be to Christ, that through the power of your spirit, I pray we recognize that, it's already true, all glory is Christ, and I pray that we would choose to look to that, we would choose to look at these harsh stories and let them point us to King Jesus. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see what you desire that your eyes would be the eyes that we're looking through, that, that, that you as king would be our focus. Lord, help us to work through this together. Give us wisdom. May your words ring true. Amen. 19 verse 1 starts with a phrase uh, about there being no king. There's no king in Israel. And that begs a, a thought that there ought to be a king, right? Uh, this phrase has been used a few times, and you'll see it. Uh, it's, it was unpacked, I think, in verse uh, chapter 17. There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their eyes. And then 21, 25, this is the end. So the beginning of what we're talking about is right here, all right? And spoiler alert, here's where we're going, 21, 25. In those days, there was no king. The author is doing this intentionally. He's trying to have a touch point. When he says there's no king, he also means everyone did what was right in their eyes. Similar to when he says they've forgotten God, Israel had forgotten God, or Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That phrase is used over and over and over, and he unpacked that a few times, the author did. Oh, they forgot God, and they worshiped idols. That's the evil they did. But every time he says Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, that's what he means. When he says there's no king, he's saying everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king. They've forgotten God. They worship idols. They do what is right in their own eyes. Evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and this is for later, but I want to touch on it now. We're about to read some stories that some of us are righteous enough and, and high enough in our society. We'd say, oh, well, I would never. My goodness, I would never do such an atrocious thing. And then some of us will read this and think, oh my gosh, humanity is really dark, and I'm like everyone else. I'm just dark and evil, right? And I think that evil wants to shift us to both extremes because we want to find that we can't relate to this at all because we're super awful or we're good enough. I want us to just walk into the reality that we all relate to this because we all have a sin problem. And if you've been in church a long time, if you're a Christian, you say, amen, yes, we all have a sin problem. Stop. Just, just, just start thinking about it. Just relate to it. Because I don't, I don't need your amens on that. I don't need you to just hypothetically agree that we're all sinners. We need to be real sinners that need a real Savior today. And so as we walk through these hard things, let's actually wrestle through our personal struggles, our church's struggles, how our culture, our city finds ourselves in this brokenness. Because the tension here is that there's no king. Say no king. And then think to yourself, who's king now? Is Trump king? Some of you think he ought to be. Is Biden king? Some of you voted for that and regret it. Some of you think it's still the best thing ever. But are they king? They're not. But we talk about them like they are. Is America king? We live that way. The greatest nation. Forget about it. Many nations have been greater. Like, like come on, walk into some humility for a minute. I'm not anti-America. I'm not anti-Trump or Biden. I just, I just don't think it's the most important thing. They're not king. Is your high school king? Is your social media king? Is your TikTok king? What is king? We're in the same problem that judges is in. What is king in our culture? It's whatever we say it is. It's whatever we decide. How quickly has our culture shifted even the last 50 years? Some of you would say, when I was in high school, I would have never. Well, my children will never, and then they do. My grandparents would have never. Your mama didn't raise you that way. Come on. There's no king. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Israel's history is our history. It's human history. 
And so as we walk through this, we need to grip the reality that we are not too far from this at all. In fact, we are deep in it. We just hide it. We, we disguise it differently. And they did the same thing. They disguised it. The author gets to look over and say, oh, here's what's actually happening. But the people who are in it, they just keep making more and more dumb decisions. So we're going to tell the dark story. We're going to start. Starts in verse or chapter 19 with another Levite. Last week we had a Levite named Jonathan. He gets a name. He has some sort of value. This Levite doesn't even get a name, right? In fact, there are very few specific names near the end of Judges because it doesn't matter. Everyone's messed up. No one needs honor. Everyone is dishonorable and messed up. So why even give them the honor of a name, right? You'll find more, less and less you find the Lord Yahweh, Jehovah. You find less and less of that. You hear no mention of the Spirit, none at the end of Judges. The last time you heard the Spirit was when it came upon Samson. Since then, gone. That's a huge deal in the narrative of Judges. The author wants you to see where is the Spirit of God? Where is his Ruach that breathed life into us and sustains us? It's gone. It's not here. But there's this Levite, and you might think, oh, Levites, these are the chosen people of God. They're the people of God to do God's stuff. But he has a concubine. Say concubine. Great. So what is that? It's a weird thing because like you could argue biblically, it's okay. People have concubines. There's never a time in Israel's history, in all the Bible, where having multiple wives or a concubine is a positive thing. There's never a single time where God says, this is okay. And there's never a single time when it doesn't turn out badly. Polygamy causes problems all through scripture. If you want more reference on that, go back a few weeks when we talked about playing the harlot, right? When Israel whores themselves out, God cares a lot about marriage. He cares a lot about his covenantal relationship. And this idea of having a mistress, having someone who's slightly above a slave, but certainly beneath the wife, and mainly her role is to sexually please you, that's not okay. And so right from the beginning, we have this weird unnamed Levite, and it says, hey, you know what this Levite is? He's got a concubine. And so any reader would be like, oh, that's a little off. That's a little strange. Story goes on. She's unfaithful to him. There's some irony, right? Uh, I don't, I, we won't unpack that. It's just interesting. She's unfaithful. She plays the harlot, right? Picture of Israel, all this. She leaves him. She goes to stay with her dad. This guy, Levite, he waits four months, uh, probably because he doesn't need her. He doesn't really value the relationship. He waits four months. I don't think he was letting her cool off. Uh, because this isn't a Western idea of marriage where he's like, I'm in the doghouse, going to let her chill. That's not the point. He doesn't care about her. He's about her. She's a concubine. He only needs her for about one thing. You can imagine what that thing is, what the word mistress can mean. So he, uh, uh, he decides to go get her after he wants his status back from having a concubine or he wants sex or whatever it is. He goes to the father-in-law who's now housing him, and, and, he, and the father-in-law is absurdly generous to him, absurdly hospitable, right? It's just like, keep staying, let me feed you, let me. And we read that at first and we think, dude's a nice guy, good pappy right here, he's taking care of it. Here's the thing. This guy could be punished potentially by death for his daughter's being unfaithful, right? Concubine or not, wife or not, his his daughter was unfaithful to this guy. And so his motive potentially is, I want to make this guy really comfortable. I want to make this Levite really happy. I'm going to be overly hospitable to him because I don't want something bad to happen to me. And therein, all of a sudden, we see the problem. This woman is treated like an object by everyone from the beginning. She's just used for sexual pleasure, she's a concubine, and then the father just, just wants to make sure he doesn't get in trouble. All of a sudden, we're seeing a tension here that women aren't very valuable all of a sudden in Israel. They're not really treated well, and that's going to get worse and worse. You're going to hear more about that. 
the Levi and the concubine, they eventually leave. They decide they're going to uh, head towards Jebus, which, uh, Jebus, which is, uh, it should be an Israel town, but it's actually a Canaanite town because Israel didn't do what they were supposed to in Judges 1.12. So it's still taken over by Canaanite. This land that was supposed to be theirs, it's not theirs. And the Levite says, you know what? Let's not go to a Canaanite town because that's where bad things are going to happen. So I'm going to take my concubine to the next town, uh, Gibeah. Uh, and that's where we're going to go, Gibeah of the Benjamites. And so he's going to go there. It's an Israel town. They should be safe there. There's immediate red flags in the story because as soon as they get there, no one welcomes them. Their own people, Israelites, not welcoming them. That's a huge deal. Hospitality is a huge deal. It's required actually by law to welcome your countrymen in. Actually, times of the year, you're t- uh, told to welcome your outsiders in. But it's a huge part in the narrative where no one welcomes them. They're sitting in the center of the city uh, of Gibeah here. And then an if Ephraimite comes and says, okay, I'll welcome you. So not someone who's specifically of that area, but he's kind of a countryman of theirs. He welcomes them and he says, you can't stay here. It's not safe to stay here in the, in the town square, which is a huge red flag. Again, why are people not being hospitable? Israelites, why is it not safe? Something's off here. We're getting some clues that there's a problem. So they take, uh, the Ephraimite takes him back to his house, and then all of a sudden we find the dark twist in the story. Wicked men come beating on the door. Gong, 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 gong. They're just knocking out the door. These people, they're being uh, welcomed by the Ephraimite. They're, they're uh, having a joyful time, eating, celebrating. Doors being knocked. At. The, the Hebrew is actually like a mob comes, like beating down the house. They're going to take down this place. And what is their request? If you follow the story. They want to have sex with the Levite. That's what they want to do. This mob wants to take advantage sexually of this Levite man. And so, you know, being a Levite, a man of God, he says, I will sacrifice myself for the greater good of everyone else. Nope. Not the story we get. The Ephraimite man, he goes out there and he says, listen, you can't do this. It's vile and wicked. Please don't take this man and sexually abuse him. Here, you can have my daughter and his concubine. Women are meaningless in Israel right now. No one's being protected. You go back to Deborah's story. If you remember that earlier on, it specifically mentioned that Sesra, what he did was he took a, two, a womb for every man, two wombs for every man, and these women were abused. And it was a highlight in Deborah's story that she was a judge and that a woman's utensil, a tent peg, was used to end Sesra. There's a message in Judges that women will be, will be protected. They will be taken care of, but not here. Women are property. They're just thrown out. And if you're a woman, you feel this because it's happened to you. You've experienced this kind of thing. None of the men in this story stand up and say, we'll, we'll do what's right. We'll take the hit. We'll step up. And this isn't a gender thing of men are stronger. Men should. It's just in general, Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this. Then a man lay down his life for his friends. No one does that in this story. The concubine is given to the men, and they rape her all night to death. That's what happens. That's the darkness of this story. She dies. In fact, this story sounds exactly like Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. And the author wants you to think of that story. And if you're an Israelite, and you're being compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, then you should be flaming mad. You should get real fired up. Because this is the worst thing in the world. In fact, Tim Keller quotes, it'll be on the screen. He says, Sodom is the great Old Testament example of rebellion against God that rightly brings upon itself the judgment of God. The parable between that pagan city and Israelite Gibeah 
carries the obvious message. Here are the people of God who have been given the covenants of Abraham and Moses, the law and the prophets, the tabernacle, the exodus, and more recently, the Savior judges. Yet despite this, they are no better than the Canaanites and pagan nations who had received none of these blessings. God people proved to be no better. They have become like Sodom. Sodom is the same story. This is a huge lens into how far Israel has fallen. So the picture is clear. During the time of the judges, Israel was just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. It's all, it's all over now. It's all hit the fan, if you'll say. Everyone's awful. There is no king. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. The wicked men bang on the door. They won't listen to the Ephraimite. So the uh, God's chosen man, the Levites, right? He's supposed to be set apart for God. You can have her. 1925, so the man, the man seized his concubine and made her go out with them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. If you want to read a harsher translation, you can read something besides the ASV that's not going to like, politely say they knew her. They knew her as a sexual reference. And as dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. The Levite treats her more and more inhumane and like property. He goes to bed that night. Oh, I've dealt with this. Here you go. You can have my concubine. He wakes up in the morning, no concern where she's at. He opens the door, sees her lying there, says, get up. That's what he says. There's no answer. 1928. He said to her, get up, let us be going. And there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose, and he went away to his home. And when he had entered his house, he took the knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces. Yes, that's what it says. And sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Twelve pieces. Sent her about. And all who saw this said, such a thing has never happened or been seen. From the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt. They're basically saying, this is as bad as it's ever been. What is happening? Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This is incomprehensible callousness and inhumanity. Like, you read this, and and the more you take... We can... I don't know if you're like so debased by the news or Call of Duty or whatever. You know, I grew up playing all sorts of bloody video games, right? And Mortal Kombat. And so you can read this and just be like, oh yeah, horror movies and stuff. But when you take in, this literally happened. This was a man set apart by God. And then you start asking, why did he do this? He doesn't love her. He doesn't care about her. He wants a response for his property being taken advantage of. Because this woman is no more to him than a piece of property, and he wants someone punished that his property, his status. There's no king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Each person is uh, horrified by this drama, and they're, they're all, everyone's guilty. No one sacrifices like Jesus. They all saw that such a thing had never happened. Ah, this is crazy. This never happened since Egypt. So then in uh, chapter 20, then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, which is the way of saying all y'alls, 
uh, everybody come out. That's what they're saying, right? From Dan to Bathsheba. That's the whole area. Everybody comes out in the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. This is the first time this has happened since Othniel's leadership. And it's a big deal. What the author's saying is, hey, you know what brings all of Israel together? This awful thing. This is so egregious. Now Israel decides to gather and be Israel. This is what they're going to do. They're going to gather over this. Not worshiping the Lord. Not talking to the Lord. Not a worship service. Not the Feast of Tabernacle. None of that's mentioned. No, they all gather because this concubine was cut up and sent to 12 different places. That's why they gather. Darkness. And the chief of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves to the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel got to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? They gathered together not to worship the Lord, not even to talk to the Lord. They ask this corrupt Levite, what happened? And if you read the story, the Levite spins the story. He says the leaders of Gibeah did this. Maybe as the leaders, maybe it's not it's the word Baal, which we talked about several Sundays ago. It's a tricky word because it can mean man, it can mean husband, it can mean leaders, it can mean uh, inhabitants. So we don't know. Maybe it's the leaders, maybe it's not. But the Levite used the word Baal, which is an interesting note if you're reading in Hebrew because you're catching, whoa, this is a word that can mean like, unholy worship, unholy, something bad. Like it's, it's a tense word. And so says maybe leaders did it. And then the Levite continues to spin this. No mention that he handed them over. No mention that he handed his cockman over. He just says, look what the people of Gibeah did. Ah. Later on in verse 2010, it says that they want to repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So the, the Israel tribes, they send a whole bunch of people, like 10,000 people, to, uh, to Gibeah. And what the Israel tribes have decided here at Mizpah, say Mizpah. It's going to come up later. They're all gathered at Mizpah. That's important. They're all going to go out now, and they're going to go to Gibeah, and they're going to demand, give us these people, 2012. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows of Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. Say purge evil. Purge evil. That's what Israel should be doing, right? Get rid of the evil. Purge evil. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers. Whoa. That's a powerful phrase. They wouldn't listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Why would they not hand over these these men, be it leaders or just inhabitants? Why do you think they wouldn't do that? There's no king who has authority. Everybody does what they want. There's a very dangerous idol in our lives that sometimes we don't like to talk about because it upsets everybody. But here you go. It's an incredibly destructive force against the spirit we have in Christ that unifies us. It's this idol of our blood, our kindred, choosing our blood, our country, our organizational ties over the only thing that actually saves and unifies us, King Jesus. When we put our, our social ties, our family, our country, our relationships to the Lord, we, we say these things are the most important. My country is the most important. My family is blood's thicker than water. We say all these things. How will you know if your country's wrong, if it has all authority? How will you know if your family's wrong? How do you know if your mama, your grandma, your nanny, your pappy, how do you know if they're wrong, if they have all authority? Enough? I'm not saying you disrespect those people. I'm not saying you don't honor your country. That's not the that's not point. Are they king? Because if that's, if that's your authority... If your favorite political speaker is your authority on your flavor of politics, 
Who's your God? Who's your king? The Bible tells us, the New Testament writers, Jesus, Paul, they push so hard that we are one spirit through King Jesus. There's no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, nor barbarian, nor Scythian, nor all is in Christ and through Christ. Who's your king? King Jesus alone unifies us. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. First Timothy says he's king of kings, lord of lords. Jesus says all authority has been given to me. Revelation, a couple different times, says Jesus referred to as king of kings, lord of lords. Sometimes it's too easy just to lean on my preferences, what I think is right, or what my family says, or what my mommy said. What's the Lord say? Benjaminites, they rally 26,700 troops to fight the rest of Israel's troops, 400,000. Do the math. Who's going to win? Come on. This isn't a 300 story. Like, they're going to get mowed down. It's a lot, of, a lot of numbers in an army. The nation of Israel will have its first civil war because of a callous and self-seeking Levite and a whole bunch of brothers that decide they're not going to give up these wicked people who raped a woman all night. That's it. This is what's tearing them apart. Do you sense the darkness here? Do you sense the tension of, well, I'd never. Here we are. They go to war. Benjamites versus Israel. Check out this verse, 2018. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel to inquire of God. Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah shall go first. This might seem like a good step. They're asking God for military advice. They're coming together. They're checking with God. Hey, what should we do? Or uh, who should go wreck our own countrymen, right? When you actually compare what, what the author is doing here, there's kind of a, a depth that, that's very uncomfortable. Uh, we've got uh, the two different versions of this verse up here because this sounds a whole lot like Judges 1.1. 1, 1. The very first verses in Judges read this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? They have been given the land, all of it, all of this place now. We've been reading all through Judges, all these different areas, all these different problems. They were given all of it. And they say, Lord, who should go up for us? And the Lord says, Judah shall go up. Behold, I, I the Lord, have given the land into your hands. The people of Israel rose, this is verse 2018, Bethel, and they inquired of God, not Lord, God, who shall go up first for us and fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go. I put the actual Hebrew words mentioned here, it matters. In the first verse of the first book, or first chapter in Judges, they say, Jehovah. They talk to Jehovah. It's the personal name of God. And we could talk about Yahweh versus Jehovah and Adonai and, and all the different flavors there. A lot of it comes down to <clears throat> pronunciation because no one knows how God's name is actually supposed to be pronounced. And so there's different ways they say it. And so we see Jehovah. Uh, it's actually written in Hebrew, Yehovah, right? And so it's say Yehovah. That's great, yeah. But you'd say Jehovah, just like Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus, right? So somehow we get this J in things for some reason, but Jehovah, right? And then we have Yahweh, and some, for some reason it never became Yahweh, but, you know, maybe. Give us time. We'll mess it up. But there's this whole idea that in the very first part, when they're with God, Joshua dies, and they say Jehovah. And now they call him Elohim. If you do a word study in Elohim and Judges, there's a couple different ways it's used. It says, Yehovah Elohim, meaning our God, Yehovah. Or it's Elohim referring to all the gods they worship or all the gods that Canaanite worships. 
And so here, instead of crying out to their God, the God who gave them a name that said, I am Jehovah, I'm Yahweh, I am, I am the Lord your God. Instead of crying out to him, they just cry out to any old God. Same word for any God that's out there. Passively, Eliohim. This idea of, yeah, I trust the big guy upstairs. You know him. Me and him are tight. No real relationship whatsoever. This is what this word means. Eliohim, passive. But then Jehovah responds, doesn't he? But he responds differently. The author wants you to catch this. He wants you to catch that this is how bad things have gotten. In the first verse, they cry out to their personal God. At the end of this book, they cry out to Eliohim, an impersonal God. They have forgotten God. They don't know him anymore. They can't call him by name. Because he's just any old God to them. They're wanting a military strategy. And God says Judah should go up, which should ripple in their ears because God originally said Judah should go up and they didn't choose to obey. And so now they're in this mess. So they, they go up against the Benjamites two different times and they lose. Things get really bad for them. Judges 20, 26 through 28, we get this sliver of them actually maybe listening to God. It says, Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. And they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Jehovah, shall we go out once more and battle against our brothers? Now it's not. This is right in our eyes. We're going to do this. Who should do it? Now, should we even be doing this, God? Now they're living like this. Go like this. This is why we have open hand and posture in our church. When you go like this, mine, I control it. I see what's right in my eyes. It doesn't work out. You always crumble. You always crash. Now they're saying, should we even be doing this, God? You're God. You're, you're Jehovah. What should we do? This time the Lord says, go up. Tomorrow I'll give them into your hand. Because justice must happen. God set up laws. These people raped a woman all night and killed her. So justice has to happen. And so God says, I'll give them in their hands. So great, they're seeking the Lord. Woohoo! The whole story's turning. You get this moment of light. Yay, let's breathe it in because it's only getting worse. <sighs> ah, they did the right thing. Cool. Israel, they set up this ambush, uh, this thing with smoke, and it's, it's an interesting thing. You can read it. I read it several times. Couldn't quite make sense of it, but uh, Keith could probably tell you exactly about it. But they, they have this weird ambush, and they end up, they end up doing some military thing and winning, right? Uh, it's probably, it'd probably make a good movie, but I couldn't quite follow the military strategy. But they win. That's the point. Woohoo! That seems good. God handed them over. Here's what happens next. Judges 20, 48. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city... The men and beasts and all they had found and all the towns they found, they set on fire. This, this obedience they had to the Lord is quickly overshadowed by this mass genocide. They decide women, children, beasts, everybody now gets massacred and murdered by these 400,000 warriors of Israel. Did God tell them to do that? Yes or no? No. That's not justice. Justice would demand that the rapists pay for what they did. But instead, women, children, everyone die. Because Israel says, we are king. We do what's right in our own eyes. And I can't stop driving that home because I want you to see it in your own life. We've got more story to go, folks. And you're going to keep hearing that phrase. This is, this is the heart. When we say we're king, 
When we say, I do what's right in my eyes, it's a slow fade. We've had 21 chapters to get here. But eventually, everything crashes, everything burns, everyone's murdered. Everyone's abducted. There's no king. Everyone does what's right. We get to chapter 21, and I'm going to summarize this a little, little quicker. But Israel decides to make foolish oaths. At Mizpah, they said, anyone who didn't meet with, a, or anyone who, uh, everyone who's here, none of us are going to give our wives to the Benjamites. So they slaughter all these Benjamites except for 600. Say 600. Mass important. 600 Benjamite men are left. They fled to the mountains for four months. Now they're back. None of them can have wives. Why? Because they murdered all of them. They killed everyone. And so there's no wives. And they made this oath to God saying, we won't give our daughters to Benjamites because they did this horrible thing. So now we're in a pickle. Because now this whole tribe, one of the 12, is going to be wiped off. And so they complain to God. And they say, what's happening, Lord? Why did this happen? God doesn't need to respond. They did this. There is no king. So now they're in this situation where this whole tribe, this big thing God gave them is about to be completely destroyed because of their, their vengeance, their ignorance. So they decide, you know what? We made this oath, but you know what? Let's, let's have another oath. So they get together and, and they do some festivals. It even says they do some religious stuffs, right? They build an altar. They don't talk to God, Right? They just decide to make another religious oath. Second oath they made was, hey, you know what? Anyone who didn't originally gather at Mizpah, remember we said Mizpah, that's important. Those people need to be put to the sword. So then it turns out that uh, some people of Jabesh Gilead, they didn't gather there. So they say, you know what? We're going to go and strike them down. They sent 12,000 warriors to go and they killed everyone except for 400 virgins. Why? Because they made a foolish oath. Did God tell them to make this oath? No. They chose to do it. Religion will kill you. Your self-righteousness, your desires to say, I got to do this, I got to do this, it'll kill you. God didn't give you cheap religiosity to make yourself be awesome. That's where Israel's at now. It's devolved into a place of, we can make oaths before God because that's what all the Canaanite gods do. We do whatever we want. There is no king. And so they make these two oaths. They say, we've got to solve this problem. All the Benjamites, they're not going to have wives. So they go and they murder a whole other group of people, except for 400 virgins, which they abduct and then give. Now, we said 600 earlier. What's 600 minus 400? So that means how many people don't have wives? 200, right? Math. You get it. Two, four, six, eight. Who do we appreciate? Okay, come on, come on. Uh, so now they have another problem. So now they're in a pickle because they can't give their own wives and they can't murder their way out of this one. Ah, turns out there's a festival of the Lord, an annual festival at Shiloh. Say Shiloh. Shiloh! So here's brilliant plan. Let's take this annual festival of the Lord, probably the Feast of Tabernacles because of virgins dancing, but we don't know. Let's take this annual feast, and we're going to tell the Benjamites, you go and you hide in ambush. You can't make this up. This is what the story says. You hide in ambush, and when the virgins come out to dance and celebrate to Jehovah, your God, the one that gave you these festivals, the one that said, hey, worship me and remember the things I've done for you and all the good things I've done, but you've completely forgotten who God is, when they're dancing, the virgins tell the Benjamites to abduct them for their wives. That's what's going to happen. Now, and they even say, so then when people complain to us, why did you take our, our virgin daughters? Why did you take my, my virgin sister? Why did you do that? Oh, well, well, we didn't give them away because we made that oath. and we, we didn't break it. And you didn't give them away either because we had this oath. 
the Benjaminites, silly aggressive Benjaminites, darn it, they just took them. Shoot. And everyone goes home happy, except for all the people who were murdered in genocide and all these virgins that were abducted. The word abducted that's used here is a tricky word. It could mean um, marriage by, eh, I can't remember the phrase, now I wrote it down somewhere. But uh, some, some historians say this is um, taking a wife and it, it was somewhat an acceptable practice. Other scholars say this is not acceptable language. These women were abused. They were taken for these Benjaminites and, and it was a bad situation. Either way, women are still being treated as property. They're still not being treated very valuable. Israel is not a safe place for women. Apparently, it's not a safe place for children. It's not a safe place for animals. It's not a safe place for anyone because there's no king. Because everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So they snatch each man his wife, 21, 23. And the people of Benjamin did this. They took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns. Woohoo! During this festival of worship, instead of worshiping the Lord, we're just abducting virgins. No big deal. Just doing, doing our thing. Come on. These are the worst. All these stories. Every one. There's so many horrifying acts of rape, murder, vengeance, self-religious, scheming. They've forgotten the Lord. Israel's worst enemy is Israel. Your worst enemy is you. Your own heart. Keller concludes at the end, he says, an assembly which had gathered to do justice for a single raped and murdered woman end up planning and promoting the murder of a whole town and the abduction and rape of girls of two Israelite towns and everyone returns home apart from the unmarried women of Jabesh Gilead and Shiloh. It's the story in a nutshell. These people gather to do justice and they end up doing similar things. Here's the main point. We keep hitting on it. Why are things so bad? Why do we read these stories? What do we do with this? Why are things so bad here? There is no king. They do what's right in their own eyes. Who is, who is our king? Church? Who is our king? Jeff City? America? World? Who is our king? Bring it back. Who's your king? Who's your king? Whose eyes are right to you? Because these stories remind us that there's something corrupt in us. And even the most religious of us that gather to do the most religious things and have seen all the things God has done, we're not too far from absolute horrific acts. And you look at Christian history, you see similar things. We've done some really silly things in the name of our religion. I have a, I have a list of some quick applications here before we kind of land on, on the main thing that I want us to remember, um, because there are too many things to talk about in these verses. So I've kind of hinted some of these things, but I'm just going to shotgun some of these things. So the Levite uh, with concubine, unhospitable people in Gibeah, uh, the wicked men and leaders of Gibeah, the Silios, the and the twisting plans to make things work without checking on what the Lord said and talking to him. We allow ourselves, consciously and unconsciously, to be shaped and enslaved to our culture. This has been the message of idols all along. We give to the idols thinking they will give back to us. I give everything to my job thinking it will give back to us. I give everything to my wife thinking she will give back to me. I give everything to whatever. That's not what God created us for. And so when you give everything to something, it crashes. It crashes under the weight of the glory you're trying to put on it because that glory belongs to God. 
And we are being so shaped and so twisted by our culture to just let these things pass. So much so that as a 21st century millennial, I had to read these stories several times before I even understood how dark they were. Because my world is just as dark. I see these things on the news. I hear about awful things. I've seen horror movies. Like some of these things, they just went by to me. And I said, oh, they don't call him Jehovah? They forgot his name? Ooh, some of those things started hitting on me. Like, man, how are we being twisted so much by our culture that that we won't even see what the Lord wants. There's so many times no one stands up and says, but God told us, his word says. No one does that. No one cares. That's not the point. It's not the word of the Lord. It's the word of whoever's talking. Who is your king? Do we decide who is king and whose eyes are best, looking to our own blood relatives, country, organizational ties, and all relationships over the only one who can actually save and unify us, King Jesus? Is Jesus our king? Or is our country, president, race, gender, sexual desire, personal preferences our king? Who's your king? Who decides that that your sexual desires are the most important thing to you? Who decides your sexual orientation? Who decides how you practice your marriage? Who decides how you practice your parenting? Who's your king? I think many of us don't want to have this posture with those things because we want to do what's right in our eyes, what makes us feel comfortable. Are we using an impersonal God as a basic tool for our lives when we need stuff beyond our control? I've got cancer and I don't know what to do about it, so I'm going to pray, pray to God. I would like prayers and thoughts about this thing. Listen, I don't want to make fun of your language because I don't know your heart and that's not my point. So I don't care if you vaguely ask for prayers. I don't pray. I don't care if you pray to the big man upstairs. The Lord is after your heart. And I think a lot of times in our culture, we hear people say God and Lord a lot. And they don't know. In fact, we were driving recently, and my, this is a side note. My daughter said, hey, is this person a Christian? She was asking someone that we both know. And I, I wanted to be honest with her. I said, Elsie, listen, I think when this person says God, they don't know the same God we know. In fact, even if they were to say, uh, Lord, I don't think they know the same Lord we know because their actions, the things they do, the things of their life, nothing points to Jesus as their king. And, and we can't know their hearts, but we can for sure know that actions reflect your heart. And if something is changed, transformation happens. You don't get hit by a bus and not have a change in life. And so if you've met Jesus, something's different about you. And so I think sometimes we have this impersonal God, this Elohim that we just cry out to, God help me. God, I've got a hard time. The Lord knows it. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Not some broad Elohim, not some random God that you throw out there. If your God doesn't come back to King Jesus, he's not the God of the Bible. We worship King Jesus. All glory be to Christ. Not to Elohim, not to God, to Christ. Christ is how we make sense of the Bible. The Lord is not interested in your religious oaths and you keeping some rigorous discipline you decide on. That gives you all the credit. We've talked about this before, right? If you do the Lord's will, you get credit for doing the Lord's will. Whereas if you're humbly faithful to God and his spirit moves in you and you do his will, he gets all the glory. All glory be to Christ. God's after your heart. He doesn't need your stupid oaths. He doesn't need you to say, oh, this time I'm not going to look at porn for a week. This time I'm going to read a chapter of the Bible every day. This time I'm going to go running so I can be more healthy. Stop. God wants your heart. Jesus is the only one that can save you. Not your religious actions, not your silly oaths. 
It's not what he's after. In fact, Jesus even said, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's why when we gather, it's so important. Because your heart wobbles. Your heart is corrupt. My heart is corrupt. I'd be lying if I said every time we sing every song in here that my heart's fully in it. I struggle because I have a real life too. And there are real bad things that happen. And sometimes I doubt. And sometimes I question. Sometimes I have struggle. So we need each other. We need to help each other along so that our hearts draw near to Christ. And the Bible tells us only the Spirit of God can change our hearts. Lastly, do we acknowledge our own sinfulness, our need for a Savior King? The same rebellious heart that led to these horrible things is in all of us. Are we real sinners sinners that need a real Savior? Is it all hypothetical to us? Eh, I'm a sinner. Kind of, I need Jesus died, saved me from my sin. Or do, can you point and say, man, these are the things Christ saved me from. I'm no longer an addict in the same way because of Jesus. I approach my marriage differently because of Jesus. I don't have a whole bunch of illegitimate kids all around the world because of Jesus. I don't, I don't continue to pursue alcohol because of Jesus. I don't continue to pursue my anger because of Jesus. I pray with my kids almost daily. God, give me gentleness and patience because I want to be a different kind of husband and father because of Jesus. Do those things come out of your life or is it just still vague? This Elio hymn God that you randomly control because you're king and you do what's right in your eyes. This is the message of judges. Who's king? We might be tempted to think that we are above all these actions, that you and I would never do these things, but we all have the same heart. And like we keep saying, this is our world, man. Who's king? Look around in your family. Who's king? Look in your city. Who's king? Who does everyone in the city gather around to worship, to talk about? In our country, who's king? In our world, who's king? God is saying, I am the King of kings, I am Lord of lords. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We were made in His image. We were originally created to worship Him, to be with Him. In fact, that was the original temptation. We talk about it every week. You're gonna, you can roll your eyes. I talk about this every week. Genesis 3, what does He say? You could be like God. You can decide good from evil. There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what's right in their own eyes. Do you see the parallel? This is our heart struggle. We want to be God. We want to see what's right in our own eyes. We decide what's good and evil. But we are made in His image for Him. The Bible is very clear on this. Isaiah 43, 7, Colossians 1, 16, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Everything was created for God's glory. It's all His. Everything you see. Let's do philosophy for a minute. If you see something beautiful, it is only beautiful because God is beautiful. If you see something good, it's only good because God is good. The reason you value love, and we understand love is commitment and sacrifice, these are objective realities that God created in us because of who God is. And it's all for His glory. And interestingly enough, what we want to do is we want to take that and we want to worship ourselves, we want to hold the glory ourselves, and we can't. We can't hold it. We weren't meant to. We were meant to point everything to Him. Your heart is a worship factory. John Calvin talks about that. Everything you do, your heart is a GPS that points to somewhere. Here's an interesting thought. You didn't start worshiping this morning. When the worship team started playing and Nathan was like, dun, 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 dun. We didn't start worship. You've been worshiping since you were born. Every moment of your life is worship. Every moment of my life is worship. The reason we gather as the church is to say, guys, we need to look to Jesus because we've probably spent six days struggling with that. So for this hour, we're going to discipline this time with music, with preaching of the word, with, with trying to respond to look to Jesus because we struggle. You were created for worship and you're always worshiping. Who's your king? All of our problems in life come back to Jesus' problems. Jesus isn't big enough. We don't know him enough. We don't trust the gospel. 
Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, to Jesus. All authority has been given to Jesus. Do we trust that? When we ask, who is your king? Who is right? I want, please, if you're watching from home, church, if you've lost count of the time because we're running over and you're drained, focus in. Give me three more minutes. This is important for you. How would you know? I want you to be uncomfortable and insecure with this. I want you to second guess who your king is because I submit by watching the world around you, by shepherding you, because I love you so much, I've got to push on this because I struggle with it too. How would you know? How would you know if you're a terribly angry father who doesn't actually show love like Jesus in your family? You won't know because you decide never to go to church because you do what's right in your eyes. How will you know if you're a manipulative, crass woman who's slowly teaching your kids to be terrible spouses one day because you don't really want to submit to the Lord? How would you know that your addiction's taking over? How would you know that you worship your job? You don't know because you're king of your life and you don't want to be here. You don't want to submit to an authority. You don't want to declare with all the saints, all glory be to Christ because you want glory for yourself. And so when I say, who is your king? I hope it creates insecurity and comfort in you. And I hope it leads you back to the only thing we can say. Jesus Christ died for me and he rose again and he is seated on high. And on my worst day, I am Christ and David. That's it. King Jesus is all I have because I'm going to fail my wife. One of the most important things in the world. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail you guys. I'm failing you right now. Jesus is all we have. He is our king. If Jesus isn't your king, who is? How would you know? We talk about prayer, scripture, and church over and over and over because that's our only basis of knowing. Scripture tells us one unified narrative about Jesus being king, about God making humanity right through his gospel, through his sacrifice, through King Jesus. This is why we talk about the gospel every week. You need scripture in your life. You need prayer in your life because God wants to have a personal relationship with you where you cry out to him, Jehovah. You cry out to him, my God, Jesus Christ, through the spirit. He doesn't want your random God language of impersonalness because he died for you personally. He died for us personally. And then you need the church. You need the church because you don't know what you don't know. I'm not going to make you this week right now in this heavy moment look at each other and say, you need me and I need you in Christ. But we say that so many weeks because we forget it. We say you don't know what you don't know because how would you know? This is why you need to be here. This is why we need you. This is why he's given us the church, Ephesians 4, so we grow up into the maturity of Christ. Otherwise, we don't have a shot. So, so as we wrestle with the response now, as we let this heaviness set on us and we ask, who is my king? Do I know King Jesus? There are several responses I want you to have, and we'll get to that. But first, I want to teach you something real quick, and then we're going to move into response time. The scripture tells us, Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus has a constant pattern of silence and solitude, of getting alone, of being quiet. We can't handle being alone and being quiet. Some of you extreme introverts, that's your whole life. But even then, I submit that there's so much noise in your head. You're struggling. It's really hard for us to be silent. We don't have meditative practices because they're uncomfortable. And those of us who do, we talk about it being a discipline because it's really hard. I'm very moved by the struggle we have with silence and solitude. And we talk about prayer, church, and scripture. How would you even know? I submit that maybe it's been a while since you've just sat with the Lord like this and said, you are my king. 
I don't know anything, but you are my king, and I want to please you. Your eyes are what matters. And so I'm going to teach you something I try to do every day. Normally, I hit three or four days a week. Um, This comes from seeing a counselor. This comes from maybe having ADHD. This comes from whatever in my life. But I submit that it's not just for wild, crazy people who talk too fast like me, but it's for everyone. I sit down in a chair, and I need silence. And I have four kids and probably ADHD, so silence doesn't really work for me. Um... Uh, I don't know how to, so I can try silence. So I take out my uh, noise-canceling headphones. This isn't a promotion of you buying these, but maybe you need these. If you can't, maybe you live out in the woods and you can find silence. Hunting is a great time for me because it's quiet. Can't, I can't make it too loud there. But I put on these headphones, and I turn on the noise-canceling feature, and then I, uh, let me, I'll put them on here. Yeah, I'll put them on for real. That's fine. Uh, now I can't hear you, so if you start talking bad about me, I won't know. But uh, so here's the thing. I put these on, and uh, Dan Musselman, maybe, uh, maybe that's, that's your guy. Uh, I think some of you might be uh, in a roundabout related to him, right, Dan? Okay, so I found him online randomly, and then it turns out I, I know his dad, and I know the pastor really well, but he does just piano worship music. So this is my very specific practice for you this week. Find a place to be quiet, and if you can't find a place to be quiet, put on some headphones and pull up Dan Musselman. Listen to just the piano-y music he plays. Set a timer for 15 minutes. Open up a piece of paper. I've got my magic pen that Nathan stole that I recently got back. Don't journal to God. This isn't a time for waxing eloquence. Dear God, may you put a hedge of protection. No. I just scribble what comes to my mind. Usually it's people's names, and every single one of you has been scribbled in the last little bit because it happens. And I'm just like, man, I wonder if Jason's mad at me. And so I just write Jason. And I think about Conrad, right, Conrad. And I just sit before the Lord. Gosh, come on, David. And the reason this is so powerful is because I don't have any control. I just submit these things before God. 15 minutes. Three days this week. You can find that time. It's 45 minutes total. Sit before the Lord because Psalms 46, 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And that's not what Israel did. Israel decided to stay busy because there was no king and they chose to do what was right in their own eyes. And so if you want the most specific practical application for this week, be still and know that he is God. I challenge you to find 15 minutes, three days this week in quiet. Fabricate quiet if you can't find quiet. I have to fabricate it. And then just process with the Lord. Open your hands. Lean into the pain. And you might find there's a lot of things you think is king that's not King Jesus. There's a lot of things that actually consume your mind that aren't the Lord. Church, please do this. This is how we look to the Lord. And if you're a committed member of Memorial, I ask you to take one more step. Tell someone about it. Say, you know what's consuming my mind a lot this week? I care so much about this family that's not here anymore. It really hurts me because I feel like I failed them. Tell someone and pray with them about it because we're one body, Right? May we look to the Lord together. If you're not a member of this church, I don't want to go too hard on this, but maybe I will. How will you know what you're supposed to be doing? 
If you're not a committed member of a church, if you haven't looked, it's not hard. We have a membership covenant in our church and there's a reason for that. Because if you're a covenant member, you're looking at me right now with passion because you know me and you know my heart and we're one. And we've made a commitment to each other before Christ to be one body, one faith, one baptism because there's one God who's above all, through all, and in all. And so if you're a covenant member moral, great. If you're not a covenant member of a church, if you haven't come forward and said, I want to join this church and I want to be a part of you and you be a part of me, why not? Why haven't you done that? That's cool if you're a member somewhere else, go there. Be with them because they need you and you need them. We are all one body. And if you're just flying out there on your own, how would you know who you're supposed to be, how you follow God? If you haven't given your life to Christ, this is your moment. We're going to move into a time of response and we're just going to have an e-pad play for a little bit. That's just this. And it's going to be silent. Let the silence scream. Take a minute to be still and know that he's God. Maybe you need to do this. If you're a moving person like me, I need something physical. Maybe you need to do this. But ask yourself, who is king? Am I avoiding these things God's told me to do because I, I want to be king? Am I avoiding baptism, joining the church, giving my life to Christ? Who's king? Whose eyes do I want to, do I want to please? Take a moment as we sit in the silence together as one body declaring in our hearts silently, all glory be to Christ. We're offering up whatever comes up. We're going to sit in silence and the band's going to come and play. If you need someone to talk and pray with, I'll be up here. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd guide us this week. Protect us from the hurry and the busyness that keeps us circling ourselves, that keeps us looking to ourselves as authority. May we recognize that all time, all money, all glory, everything is yours. All glory be to Christ. And I pray that you would help us open our hands this week, take time to be in silence before you, to look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the founder King of kings, Lord of lords, who has all authority. Father, may we look to you, continue to find that you're with us always, as you promise. May we see your kingdom come and your will be done. Thank you for the lanes. We pray that we would all continue to grow to be like Jesus. Amen. All glory be to Christ.